Chapter Ten, Part Three of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Ten, Part Three, Georges de Maurier. It is easy to see that Du Maurier is of the eminently justifiable opinion that nothing in the world is so fair as the fairness of fair women, and if so many of his women are fair, it is to be inferred that he has a secret for drawing out their advantages. This secret, indeed, is simply that fineness of perception of which we have already had occasion to speak, and to which it is necessary so often to refer. He is evidently of the opinion that almost any woman has beauty, if you look at her in the right way, carefully enough, intelligently enough, and that a fortiori the exceptionally handsome women contain treasures of plasticity, feminine line and surface curves of shoulder stretches of arm turns of head undulations of step are matters of attentive study to him and his women have for the most part the art of looking as if they excelled in amiability as much as in contour we know a gentleman who, on being requested to inscribe himself on one of those formidable folios kept in certain houses, in which you indict the name of your favorite flower, favorite virtue, favorite historical character, wrote in the compartment dedicated to the three favorite qualities in a woman the simple words, Grace, Grace, Grace. Du Maurier might have been this gentleman, for his women are inveterately and imperturbably graceful. We have heard people complain of it, complain, too, that they all look alike, that they are always sisters, all products of a single birth. They have, indeed, a mutual resemblance, but when once the beautiful type has been found, we see no reason why, from a restless love of change, the artist should depart from it. We should feel as if Du Maurier had been fickle and faithless, if he were suddenly to cease to offer us the tall, tranquil persons he understands so well. They have an inestimable look of repose, a kind of Greek serenity. There is a figure in a cut of which we have forgotten both the point and the date, we mention it at hazard, it is one in a hundred, which only needed to be modelled in clay to be a truly important creation. A couple of children address themselves to a youthful aunt, who leans her hand upon a toilet table, presenting her back, clothed in a loose gown, not gathered in at the waist, to the spectator. Her charming pose, the way her head slowly turns, the beautiful folds of her robe, make her look more like a statuette in a museum than like a figure in punch. We have forgotten what the children are saying, but we remember her charming attitude, which is a capital example of the love of beauty for beauty's sake. It is the same bias as the characteristic of the poet, the intention of these remarks has been supposed to be rather a view of de Maurier in his relation to English society than a technical estimate of his powers, a line of criticism to which we may already appear unduly to have committed ourselves. 
he is predominantly a painter of social as distinguished from popular life and when the other day he collected some of his drawings into a volume he found it natural to give them the title of english society at home he looks at the luxurious classes more than at the people though he by no means ignores the humours of humble life his consideration of the peculiarities of costermongers and cadgers is comparatively perfunctory as he is too fond of civilization and of the higher refinements of the grotesque his colleague the frank and objective keen has a more natural familiarity with the british populace there is a whole side of english life at which du maurier scarcely glances the great sporting element which supplies half of their gaiety and all their conversation to millions of her majesty's subjects he is shy of the turf and of the cricket field he only touches here and there upon the river but he has made society completely his own he has sounded its depths explored its mysteries discovered and divulged its secrets his observation of these things is extraordinarily acute and his illustrations taken together form a complete comedy of manners in which the same personages constantly reappear so that we have the sense indispensable to keenness of interest of tracing their adventures to a climax so many of the conditions of english life are spectacular and to american eyes even romantic that du maurier has never been at a loss for subjects he may have been at a loss for his joke we hardly see how he could fail to be at the rate at which he has been obliged to produce but we repeat that to ourselves the joke is the least part of the affair we mean that he is never at a loss for scenes english society makes scenes all round him and he has only to look to see the most charming combinations which at the same time have the merit that you can always take the satirical view of them he sees for instance the people in the park the crowd that gathers under the trees on june afternoons to watch the spectacle of the row with the slow solemn jostle of the drive going on behind it such a spectacle as this may be vain and unprofitable to a mind bent upon higher business but it is full of material for the artist who finds a fund of inspiration in the thousand figures faces types accidents attitudes the way people stand and sit the way they stroll and pause the way they lean over the rail to talk to one of the riders the way they stare and yawn and bore themselves these things are charming to de maurier who always reproduces the act with wonderful fidelity this we should bear in mind having spoken above of his aversion to the violent he has indeed a preference for quiet and gradual movements but it is not in the least because he is not able to make the movement definite no one represents a particular attitude better than he and it is not too much to say that the less flagrant the attitude the more latent its intention the more successfully he represents it 
the postures people take while they are waiting for dinner while they are thinking what to say while they are pretending to listen to music while they are making speeches they don't mean the thousand strange and dreary expressions of face and figure which the detached mind may catch at any moment in wandering over a collection of people who are supposed to be amusing themselves in a superior manner all this is entirely familiar to du maurier he renders it with inimitable fidelity his is the detached mind he takes refuge in the divine independence of art he reproduces to the life the gentleman who is looking with extraordinary solemnity at his boots the lady who is gazing with sudden rapture at the ceiling the grimaces of fifty people who would be surprised at their reflection if the mirror were suddenly to be presented to them in such visions as these of course the comical mingles with the beautiful and fond as du maurier is of the beautiful it is sometimes heroically sacrificed at any rate the comic effect is in the drawing never missed the legend that accompanies it may sometimes appear to be wanting in the grossest drollery but the expression of the figures is always such that you must say how he has hit it this is the kind of comedy in which du maurier excels the comedy of those social relations in which the incongruities are pressed beneath the surface so that the picture has need of a certain amount of explanation the explanation is often rather elaborate in many cases one may almost fancy that the image came first and the motive afterward that is it looks as if the artist having seen a group of persons in certain positions had said to himself they must or at least they may be saying so and so and then had represented these positions and affixed the interpretation he passes over none of those occasions on which society congregates the garden party the picnic the flower show the polo match though he has not much cultivated the humors of sport he has represented polo more than once and he has done ample justice to lawn tennis just as he did it years ago to the charming dawdling spooning tedium of croquet which he depicted as played only by the most adorable young women with the most diminutive feet but he introduces us more particularly to indoor entertainments to the london dinner party and all those variations which cover such a general sameness to the afternoon tea to the fashionable squash to the late and suffocating small and early to the scientific conversazioni to the evening with a little music his musical parties are numerous and admirable he has exposed in perfection the weak points of those entertainments the infatuated tenor bawling into the void of the public indifference the air of lassitude that pervades the company the woe-begone look of certain faces the false and overacted attention of certain others the young lady who is wishing to sing and whose mamma is glaring at the young lady who is singing the bristling heads of foreigners of the professional class which stand out against the sleekness of british respectability 
du maurier understands the foreigner as no caricaturist has done hitherto and we hasten to add that his portraits of continental types are never caricatures they are serious studies in which the idiosyncrasies of the race in question are vividly presented his germans would be the best if his french folk were not better still but he has rendered most happily the aspect and indeed the very temperament of the german pianist he has not often attempted the american and the american reader who turns over the back volumes of punch and encounters the cartoons born under an evil star in which during the long weary years of the war the obedient pencil of mr teniel contributed at the expense of the american physiognomy to the gaiety of nations will not perhaps regret that du maurier should have avoided this particular field of portraiture it is not however that he has not occasionally been inspired by the american girl whom he endows with due prettiness as in the case of the two transatlantic young ladies who in the presence of a fine alpine view exclaim to a british admirer my ain't it rustic as for the french he knows them intimately as he has a right to do he thinks better of the english of course but his frenchman is a very different affair from the frenchman of leech the frenchman who is seasick as if it were the appanage of his race alone on the channel steamer in such a matter as this du maurier is really psychological he is versed in the qualities which illustrate the difference of race he accentuates first of course the physical variation he contrasts with a subtlety which may not at first receive all the credit it deserves the long fair english body inclined to the bony the lean the angular with the short plump french personality in which the neck is rarely a feature in which the stomach is too much of one in which the calves of the legs grow fat in which in the women several of the joints the wrists the shape of the hand are apt to be charming some of his happiest drawings are reminiscences of a midsummer sojourn at a french watering-place we have long been in the habit of looking for punch with peculiar impatience at this season of the year when the artist goes to France, he takes his big dog with him, and he has more than once commemorated the effect of this impressive member of a quiet English family upon the Norman and Breton populations. There have appeared at this time certain anecdotic pictures of English travellers in French towns, in shops, markets, tram-cars, in which some of the deeper disparities of the two peoples have been, under the guise of its being all a joke, very sufficiently exposed. Du Maurier, on the whole, does justice to the French. His English figures in these international tableaux by no means always come off best. When the English family of many persons troops into the charcutier or the perfumers and stand planted there, mute, inexpressive, perpendicular, the demonstrations, the professions, the abundant speech of the neat, plump, insinuating boutiquier 
are a well-intended tribute to the high civilization of her country. Du Maurier has done the low foreigner of the London or of his native streets, the foreigner whose unspeakable baseness prompts the Anglo-Saxon observer to breathe the Pharisee's vow of thanks that he is not as these people are. But, as we have seen, he has done the low Englishman quite as well, the array of the London music halls, the companion of Ansem Ariette and Mr. Belleville, Du Maurier's rendering of Ari's countenance, with its bloated purple bloom, of Ari's figure, carriage, and costume, of his deportment at the fancy fair, where the professional beauties solicit his custom, is a triumph of exactitude. One of the most poignant of the drawings that illustrate his ravages in our civilization is the large design which, a year or two ago, represented the narrow canal beneath the Bridge of Sighs. The hour is evening, and the period is the detested date at which the penny steamer was launched upon the winding waterways of the loveliest city in the world the odious little vessel belching forth a torrent of black smoke passes under the covered arch which connects the ducal palace with the ducal prison ansom ariot and mr belleville personally conducted are of course on board and ariot remarks that the bridge of size isn't much of a size after all to which her companion rejoins that it has been immortalized by byron anyway "'Im as wrote our boys, you know.' This fragment of dialogue expresses concisely the arguments both for and against the importation of the cheap and nasty into Venetian waters. Returning for a moment to Du Maurier's sketches of the French, we must recall the really interesting design in which, at a child's party at the casino of a station balnière, a number of little natives are inviting a group of English children to dance. The French children have much the better manners. They make their little bows with a smile, they click their heels together, and crook their little arms as they offer them to their partners. The sturdy British infants are dumb, mistrustful, vaguely bewildered. Presently you perceive that in the very smart attire of the gracious little Gauls everything is wrong. Their high heels, their poor little legs— at once too bare and too much covered, their superfluous sashes and scarves. The small English are invested in plain jerseys and knickerbockers. The whole thing is a pearl of observation, of reflection. Let us recall also the rebuke administered to Monsieur Dubois, the distinguished young man of science who, just arrived from Paris and invited to dine by the Duke of Stilton, mentions this latter fact in apology for being late to a gentleman to whose house he goes on leaving the Duke's. This gentleman, assisted by Mr. Grigsby, both of them specimens of the snob Philistine, whom Du Maurier has brought to such perfection, reprehends him in a superior manner for his rashness, reminds him that in England it is not usual for a professional man to allude in that promiscuous manner to having dined with a duke, 
a privilege which Grigsby characterizes the perfection of consummate achievement. The advantage is here with poor Monsieur Dubois, who is a natural and sympathetic figure, a very gentil little Frenchman. The advantage is doubtless also with Mademoiselle Serrurier and her mother, though Mademoiselle is not very pretty, in a scene in which, just after the young lady has been singing at Mrs. Ponsonby de Tompkins, the clever Mrs. Ponsonby plays her off on the Duchess as an inducement to come to another party and then plays the duchess off on the little vocalist and her mother who in order to secure the patronage of the duchess promised to come to the entertainment in question the clever mrs ponsonby thus gets both the duchess and the vocalist for nothing the broad-faced french girl with small salient eyes her countenance treated in the simplest and surest manner is a capital specimen of Dumouriez's skill in race portraiture, and though they may be a knowing couple in their way, we are sure that she and her mamma are incapable of the machinations of Mrs. Ponsonby de Tompkins. This lady is a real creation. She is an incident of one of the later phases of Dumouriez's activity a child of the age which has also produced mrs simabue brown and messrs model and postlethwaite she is not one of the heroines of the aesthetic movement though we may be sure she dabbles in that movement so far as it pays to do so mrs ponsonby de tompkins is a little of everything in so far as anything pays she is always on the lookout she never misses an opportunity. She is not a specialist, for that cuts off too many opportunities, and the aesthetic people have the tort, as the French say, to be specialists. No, Mrs. Ponsonby de Tompkins is, what shall we call her? Well, she is the modern social spirit. She is prepared for everything." she is ready to take advantage of everything she would invite mr bradlaugh to dinner if she thought the duchess would come to meet him the duchess is her great achievement she never lets go of her duchess she is young very nice-looking slim graceful indefatigable she tires poor ponsonby completely out she can keep going for hours after poor Ponsonby is reduced to stupefaction. This unfortunate husband is indeed almost always stupefied. He is not, like his wife, a person of imagination. She leaves him far behind, though he is so inconvertible that if she were a less superior person he would have been a sad encumbrance. He always figures in the corner of the scenes in which she distinguishes herself, separated from her by something like the gulf that separated Caliban from Ariel. He has his hands in his pockets, his head poked forward. What is going on is quite beyond his comprehension. He vaguely wonders what his wife will do next. Her maneuvers quite transcend him. Mrs. Ponsonby de Tompkins always succeeds. She is never at fault. She is as quick as the instinct of self-preservation. She is the little London lady who is determined to be a greater one. 
She pushes, pushes, gently but firmly, always pushes. At last she arrives. It is true that she had only the other day, on 29th June 1882, a considerable failure. We refer the reader to the little incident of Madame Gaminon in the punch for that date. But she will recover from it. She has already recovered from it. She is not even afraid of Sir Gorgias Midas, of the dreadful Midas Jr., she pretends to think Lady Midas the most elegant of women. When it is necessary to flatter, she lays it on, as with a trowel. She hesitates at nothing. She is very modern. If she doesn't take the aesthetic line more than is necessary, she finds it necessary to take it a little. For if we are to believe Du Maurier... The passion for strange raiment and blue china has, during the last few years, made ravages in the London world. We may be sure that Mrs. Ponsonby de Tomkins has an array of fragile discs attached to her walls, and that she can put in a word about Botticelli at the right moment. She is far, however, from being a representative of aestheticism, for her hair is very neatly arranged, and her dress looks French and superficial. In Mrs. Simabue Brown we see the priestess of the aesthetic cult, and this lady is on the whole a different sort of person. She knows less about duchesses, but she knows more about dados. Du Maurier's good-natured chaff of the eccentricities of the plastic sense, so newly and so strangely awakened in England, has perhaps been the most brilliant episode of his long connection with Punch. He has invented Mrs. Simabue Brown. He has invented Model and Postlethwaite. These remarkable people have had great success in America, and have contributed not a little to the curiosity felt in that country on the subject of the English Renaissance. Strange rumors and legends in relation to this great movement have made their way across the Atlantic, the sayings and doings of a mysterious body of people devotees of the lovely and the precious living in goodly houses and walking in gracious garments were repeated and studied in our simpler civilization there has not been as yet an american renaissance in spite of the taste for sincere sideboards and fragments of crockery american interiors are perhaps to-day as gracious as english but the movement in the united states has stopped at household furniture has not yet set its mark upon speech and costume much less upon the human physiognomy du maurier of course has lent a good deal of his own fame to the vagaries he depicts but it is certain that the new aesthetic life has had a good deal of reality a great many people have discovered themselves to be fitted for it, both by nature and by grace, so that noses and chins, facial angles of every sort, shaped according to this higher rule, have become frequent in London society. This reaction of taste upon nature is really a marvel, and the miracle has not been repeated in America, nor, so far as we know, upon the continent of Europe. 
the love of Botticelli has actually remoulded the features of several persons. London, for many seasons, was full of Botticelli women, with wan cheeks and weary eyes, enveloped in mystical crumpled robes. Their language was apt to correspond with their faces. They talked in strange accents, with melancholy murmurs and cadences. They announced a gospel of joy, but their expression, their manners, were joyless. These peculiarities did not cross the ocean, for somehow the soil of the Western world was not as yet prepared for them. American ladies were even heard to declare that there was something in their constitution that would prevent their ever dressing like that. They had another ideal. They were committed to the whalebone. But meanwhile, as I say, there was something irritating, fascinating, mystifying in the light thrown on the subject by Punch. It seemed to many persons to be desired that we too should have a gospel of joy. American life was not particularly gracious, and if only the wind could be made to blow from the aesthetic quarter, a great many dry places would be refreshed. These desires perhaps have subsided, for Punch of late has rather neglected the Renaissance. Mrs. Simabue Brown is advancing in years, and Messrs. Maudel and Postlethwaite have been through all their paces. The new aesthetic life, in short, shows signs of drawing to a close, after having, as many people tell us, effected a revolution in English taste, having at least, if not peopled the land with beauty, made certain consecrated forms of ugliness henceforth impossible. The whole affair has been very curious, and we think very characteristic of the English mind. The same episode fifty times repeated, a hundred revolutions of taste, accompanied with an infinite expenditure of money, would fail to convince certain observant and possibly too sceptical strangers that the English are an aesthetic people. They have not a spontaneous artistic life. Their taste is a matter of conscience, reflection, duty, and the writer who in our time has appealed to them most eloquently on behalf of art has rested his plea on moral standards, has talked exclusively of right and wrong. It is impossible to live much among them, to be a spectator of their habits, their manners, their arrangements, without perceiving that the artistic point of view is the last that they naturally take. The sense of manner is not part of their constitution. They arrive at it, as they have arrived at so many things, because they are ambitious, resolute, enlightened, fond of difficulties but there is always a strange element either of undue apology or of exaggerated defiance in their attempts at the cultivation of beauty. They carry on their huge broad back a nameless mountain of conventions and prejudices, a dusky cloud of inaptitudes and fears, which casts a shadow upon the frank and confident practice of art, the consequence of all this is that their revivals of taste are even stranger than the abuses they are meant to correct. They are violent, voluntary, mechanical, 
wanting in grace, in tact, in the sense of humour and of proportion. A genuine artist like Dumouriez could not fail to perceive all this, and to perceive also that it gave him a capital opportunity. None of his queer people are so queer as some of these perverted votaries of joy. Excuse me, it is not a Botticelli. Before a Botticelli I am dumb, one of them says to a poor plain man who shows him a picture which has been attributed to that master. We have said already and repeated that Dumouriez has a great deal of irony the irony of the thorough-going artist and of the observer who has a strain of foreign blood in his veins. There are certain pretensions that such a mind can never take seriously. In the artist there is of necessity, as it appears to us, a touch of the democrat, though perhaps he is as unlikely to have more than a certain dose of this disposition as he is to be wholly without it. Some of his drawings seem to us to have for the public he addresses a stinging democratic meaning. Like the adventure of Monsieur Dubois, of whom we have spoken, who had had the inconvenience of dining with a duke, or the reply of the young man who had had the inconvenience of dining with a duke, or the reply of the young man to whom Miss Midas remarks that he is the first commoner she has ever danced with, and why is it the commoners have avoided you so? Or the response of the German savant to Mrs. Lion Hunter, who invites him to dine without his wife, though she is on his arm, to meet various great ladies whom she enumerates. And pray, do you think they would not be respectable company for my wife? Dumouriez possesses in perfection the independence of the genuine artist in the presence of a hundred worldly superstitions and absurdities. We have said, however, that the morality, so to speak, of his drawings was a subordinate question. What we wish to insist upon is their completeness, their grace, their beauty, their rare pictorial character. It is an accident that the author of such things should not have been a painter, that he has not been an ornament of the English school. Indeed, with the restrictions to which he has so well accommodated himself, he is such an ornament. No English artistic work in these latter years has, in our opinion, been more exquisite in quality. 1883 End of chapter 10, part 3, Georges de Maurier.